episode contains descriptions of murder and it might not be suitable for all listeners. Hi, Dan. Hi, Katie. Welcome, everyone, to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. (laughs) Uh, How's it going? Good. Not too bad. Enjoying. Yeah. Not working. Lovely. It's a cool Also, my exciting news from this week is that I went to a bookshop. I went to Waterstones and Piccadilly Ooh. on Sunday. So I went. I got off at Oxford Street, which is mental. And I walked down Regent Street. And as I walked down, it was getting slowly quieter and quieter. And I stepped into Waterstones. And it was like heaven. Because oh, they man. don't have music, which is great. It was so quiet. Like, I, there was like four people in the section I was looking in. I was in the art history section and maybe there was like two other people there. Um, and it was bliss. I can't even tell you. Like an ultra I missed plush it so library. Much. I bought three books, Dan. <laughs> three. Oh, very nice. What did you I buy? I took like ten pictures of books that I wanted to buy. <laughs> um, I bought a book on Artemisia Gentilensky. Very nice. I bought a book on race science. Which is called Superior. It's by the woman who wrote Inferior. Okay. Um, and I bought... Oh, I bought a fiction book, um, which I've already finished, which is a book by a French author who... And it's set in Korea, um, and it was really, really good. So you should borrow it, because it's really short. It's like 170 pages or something. Yeah, I'll, I'll check that out. So yeah, that was really exciting, and I want to go back immediately. So The ones you take a photo of... Are you going to do commit the cardinal sin and look for it on Amazon? No, I just take pictures of them and I put. I have a folder in my phone pictures that is like called books. And yeah. there's the books that I will either buy from a bookshop, because I don't buy books off Amazon, unless they're literally only available on Amazon, or um, I'll ask for them for like birthdays or Christmas. That's so that's like all my to be read oh yeah yeah like yeah to be read folder of unless they're like a hundred pounds in a bookshop and 10 pounds on amazon yeah because that frequently happens in textbooks happens. sometimes <laughs> yeah but no most of the time i'm very very good and i i buy it from bookshops i'm awful i buy everything from amazon it's because that's where my like book list is it's just there so all i have to do is click on the two clicks yeah, it's and, it's, hard. and it's and it's in my bounds. you should do my methods where you take pictures of them when you see them in in a bookshop and then they're not on your Amazon list. They're like in a folder. Yeah, but then I have to go. I then I have to leave my house and then go to a bookshop. You don't. You could easily buy from Waterstones online or even other independent booksellers easily. Actually, yeah, there is that new service, isn't there? That's uh, brought all yeah. the independent bookshops together and. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I can't remember what it's called. It's called like, uh, it's called like booksellers or something. Yeah, there's a new independent like online thing where you can do yeah. that. The only reason that I do prefer Waterstones is that is their um, rewards system. Oh yeah, I don't use that. Yeah, and I also get, I still get a student discount, even though I haven't been student <laughs> for ages. <laughs> so, because they just don't change it. Anyway, should we talk about history? Yeah, enough book chats. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's talk about it's things that we've read podcast. in books. Uh, okay then, so let's just get right into it. I'm sure you must have heard this person. These people. I'm doing two people actually. I'm doing another cheat thing. I've got two people, but they're so inextricably links that i have to i have to do them together i can't i can't not fair enough it would be wrong we, we do that here to do a part 
Uh, and you will definitely know who they are. Have you heard of William Burke and William Hare? Two Williams, the two Bills. I've heard of William Burke. Burke and Hare? I've heard of William Hare. <laughs> so, they are two infamous resurrection men who didn't go about their business in the traditional way. Instead of <laughs> okay. digging up corpses, they decide to make corpses to sell to uh, oh, yes. surgeons for yes. dissection and all that sort of thing. I have stuff. heard of them. I have. Oh, this is going to be so good. <laughs> this is my job. They're two of my. They're two of my favorite serial killers of all time. If I have this to, favorite serial killers. <laughs> I, um, um, who doesn't have favorite serial killers? <laughs> just uh, there was like a film made about them, starring Simon Pegg and oh, what's his name? The guy who played Smeagol Gollum in um, Lord of the uh, Andy Circus. Him, yeah. Unfortunately, it's a terrible him, he's really film. Nice. Yeah, I, I would imagine he does seem like a very nice guy from his from interviews. Yeah, I taught and his, I taught his son. So really, any, oh, that's yeah. going to fame, right there. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, the film is disappointing, which is annoying. But, like it's such a good story. I should probably make a serious version rather than a more comic one. Anyway, besides the point. Anyway, let's move on. Um, let's talk about it. Let's do it. <laughs> so start grim. with. Start with William Burke. So William Burke was born in 1792 in Ernie, County Tyrone, Ireland. Uh, one of two sons to middle-class parents. So he had a pretty comfortable upbringing. Okay. And this time. Um, so along with his brother, Constantine, uh, he joined the British Army as a teenager. So pretty respectable path for that time. Uh, he served in the in the uh, Donegal Militia. Um so he served there until he met a woman from County Mayo. Uh, that marriage, though, was short-lived. Uh, in 1818, after an argument with his father-in-law over land ownership, Burke deserted his wife and family. So I kind of suspect oh, no. he wanted uh, early inheritance. Uh, so, I mean, it turns out he was always impatient when it came to profiting from death. This guy. <laughs> this guy. Um, so he moved to Scotland and became a labourer working on the Union Canal. As here he met um, a woman named Helen McDougall, and she would become his common law wife. Uh, according to the BBC, I wrote an article in the BBC about it, and apparently they never formally married. Though other places kind of like suggest that he was just they were just like husband and wife. But yeah, according to the BBC, okay. they never married. Um, so. Uh, f- they set up home in a small village um, called uh, Madison near Falkirk. Uh, so that's why he was working on the Union Canal. After that, after a few years, um, when the canal was finished, the couple moved to Tanner's Close in Edinburgh uh, in November 1827. So in Edinburgh, he made a living through hawking, selling second-hand clothes to the impoverished locals. Uh, and then became a cobbler. I love cobbler. That's such a good word. Um, it's a really good word. Because it word. also means a really nice dessert as well. So. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was a trade um, he experienced some success in, uh, earning upwards of one pound a week. One shiny pound. That was probably quite one good. One English pound. <laughs> um, or Scottish pound. 
Edinburgh. Oh yeah, that's true actually. <laughs> Damn it, I missed an opportunity. Uh, uh, so he became uh, known locally as an industrious and good-humoured man who often entertained his clients by singing and dancing to them on their doorsteps while play- playing his trade. So respectable and liked. Um, though maybe not uh, middle-class respectable, perhaps, as a cobbler. I don't know. Would that be middle-class at that time? I don't know. It dep- I guess this is just a whole question over like what constitutes yeah what constitutes yeah. middle and working class i guess it depends on who his he was serving how he was living how much money he was making but i, I think we going... can say that's middle class at that yeah. time yeah he was I going door to fair. door so it's probably lower than having an establishment but but yeah i mean like still skilled so yeah. anyway uh he was also apparently seldom seen without a, a bible so, seemingly a religious man, but I mean, like, it doesn't seem like he was, considering what he would go on to do. Um, right, so, let's move on to William Hare. So, we don't have much on Hare's early life. Um, he was probably born in either County Omar, County Londonderry, or Newry. So, I mean, like, that's that's a pretty large area. Okay, he was probably born somewhere. No one's <laughs> nailing that down. His age and year of birth are unknown. Uh, when he was arrested in 1828, he gave his age as 21. But some sources state that he was born somewhere between 1792 and 1804. So, I mean, like... Yeah. Got, we've got quite a few years to, like, play with there. Around um, the 1800s, <laughs> Mark. Yeah. Uh, it's likely that he worked... Apparently, uh, in Ireland as an agricultural labourer before travelling to Britain. But, I mean, like, I think that's just speculated because it was common work in Ireland at the time. He probably worked in agriculture. Everyone else did, so he probably did too. I mean, like, I think that's the the basis of that. Yeah, that's Um, not very specific either. But, hey, it paints a picture. Um, He he apparently moved to Edinburgh also to to, uh, work on the Union Canal. Uh, did that for seven years in the mid-1820s. But he didn't meet Burke during this period, even though we were both working on it at the same time. Um, afterwards, he moved to Edinburgh, where he uh, worked as a coal man's assistant. Not a great profession uh, at that time. It's going to be not good on the lungs. Um, so while he was in... Uh, Edinburgh, he, he uh, lodged at Tanner's Close. So... That was again close to Burke, but again they still they still didn't meet while they were living so close together. Um, so this house was owned at this time by a man named Logue Laird and his uh, and his wife uh, Margaret. When Logue died in eighteen twenty six, had married Margaret, uh, which means the house um, that the the, uh, the lodging house that Logue had owned uh, passed down to Margaret or, or like Hare himself. I can't remember. So I'm not really sure who ended up owning it. But basically yeah, the, the, house. <laughs> the ownership of the house and the income it provided passed to um, to Hare and, and Margaret led. Um, so a bit of an income from that. But this would also become the place where they committed most of their murders. <laughs> they inherited their little house of death. <laughs> Uh, so based on contemporary accounts, um, 
Uh, Brian Bailey, uh, in his History of the Murders, describes Hare as an illiterate and uncouth man, lean and quarrelsome, violent and amoral character with scars from old wounds about his head and brow. Um, so quite the opposite of Burke. In yeah, um, it does seem. But I think so like sometimes, you know, murderer pairs, you know, they, they officers dragged. So. so, oh, even though they were living quite close to... Uh, to get uh, to each other in Tanner's place, they, yeah, as I mentioned before, they had they didn't meet while they were living there. They met one year later when Burke and uh, his Commonwealth uh, law wife McDougal went to Pinnaquick in mid uh, Lothian to work on the harvest there. Um, so Hare had also moved to get some extra money through the harvest, so they met there. The men became friends. And this is eighteen what? Uh, Twenty seven. Twenty seven. Okay. So after meeting on the harvest, the men became quick friends, and when they returned to Edinburgh, they moved into Hare's uh, Tanner Close Lodgings House, uh, where the the two couples were known to be um, hard drinkers and generally boisterous. Oh, they made friends. That's yeah. nice. Boisterous sounds so fun, though. It's just like, oh, they're just all like having a laugh. I mean... Lads, lads, lads. It went a bit further than that. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so let's move on to a little brief history of anatomy in Britain at the time. So, yes. first time, <laughs> anatomy was kind of like first being developed into a modern science, uh, making a, a move towards real scientific medicine and modern surgery as opposed to like the crazy, the craziness that existed before. All like bleeding and stuff. I think that was probably... We're still probably talking about bleeding, right? And humans. Yeah, I think so. Because you think about, like, yeah. So Edinburgh was one of the sciences centres, like a hub. Uh, It was home to several pioneering anatomy teachers, including Alexander Monroe uh, and his son, who was also called Alexander Monroe, the two Alexander (laughs) Monroes, John Bell, uh, John Goodsir. That's such a good name for. Yeah, there are a lot of good sirs. Good sir. He is a good sir. And one, Robert Knox. Uh, so, yeah. obviously, teaching of anatomy required a sufficient supply of cadavers, and the demand for these increased as the science developed. Unfortunately, Scottish law around this time was strict. So it stated only those who died in prison, suicide victims, and the bodies of foundlings and orphans could be dissected upon death. I mean, orphans? That's just... That's quite harsh, isn't it? Just if you don't have <laughs> parents, then you don't mean anything and your body can just be cut up into little pieces. It's fine. We don't care about that. It's fine. Um, so with the rise uh, in prestige and popularity of medical training in Edinburgh uh, and the legal supply of corpses failing to keep pace with demand, students, lecturers and grave robbers, also known as resurrection men, began an illicit trade and exhumed cadavers. Um so this also happened in London. The London Burkers, who were named after William Burke, who I was originally going to do, but the story's kind of like short and there wasn't like that many, like that much in the way of like detail. And uh, I, th- I thought yeah. it would be a bit boring compared to this because this one is a wild ride. <laughs> uh, so the situation was confused by the legal position. So disturbing a grave was a criminal offence, as was taking property from the deceased so you could like grave robbing taking valuables or whatever however stealing the body itself wasn't that was fine you could do that because the body basically just 
didn't belong to anyone. Yeah. Um, so but the who does the body cult, belong to? Like, I guess the estate. Yeah. I mean, like, so you'd basically you'd have to strip the body naked because I guess taking the clothes, offence. But just the body in the clothes, fine. 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 That's fine. You can have it. <laughs> uh, so the price per corpse changed depending on the season. So it was eight pounds during the summer when the uh, <laughs> the warm weather meant quicker decomposition. Oh, I mean, like hilarious. in Scotland, though, it's never really that warm, is it? Uh, so there were just fewer public dissections in general in summer. The price increased to £10 in the winter months because the lower temperatures meant they could store the corpses for longer, meaning more dissections, greater demand. Because that's the market, baby. That's the market. <laughs> Capitalism. Um, yeah. So this led to an increased security in graveyards. So guards were hired to watch graves. Watchtowers were built in several cemeteries. And some families even hired just large stone slabs that we just placed over a grave for a short period of time until the body had like had begun to decay past the point of being useful for an anatomist yeah do you still the see them around there. really yeah, yeah. Well, like the around. stones on uh on graves i didn't know that that was what they were for but yeah you st- can still see them in some of on some graveyards are people still like really corpses? old really oh, okay old then it's like man are people still do no this? not new ones <laughs> i mean like if you go to like um you know, graveyards that aren't even graveyards anymore. Yeah, yeah. They're just like church, church gardens. Yeah, there, there. You can still see some stone slabs, but I wasn't. I didn't know that was what they were for. That's quite horrific. It's <laughs> great, isn't it? <laughs> Protects the body. <laughs> While we're uh, on the subject, do you know what? How? Where the term "dead ringer" comes from? No. So when um, back in the day, obviously, there wasn't technology to know whether someone was in a coma or someone was dead. Yeah. So if they thought someone was in a coma, um, obviously, there's no really way of them coming out if they've been in it for a while or they didn't yeah. think they would come out. But what they would do was they would tie like a like a string around their wrist and put the wrist out of the grave and put yeah. a bell on the on the other end so if they woke up in the coffin they could shake the wrist would shake and you'd hear that's mad hence dead ringer (laughs) and there was also that's where the word the term graveyard shift comes from as well because they used to hire people who would to at night walk around yeah walk around the graveyards to make sure that you know there weren't any dead ringers so that's but surely, like, really they would grim just, fact for you all. Surely they'd just suffocate in those coffins. Of course they would. <laughs> this is a terrible You're not, like plan. digging them up fast <laughs> enough for them to not suffocate. But there you go. Wow. God, that's grim. Just hands hanging out the Decomposing hands just hanging out of a grave. No, no, no. The hand Lovely. was still in the coffin. They just had okay, a piece then. of string and the string was coming out oh right so they just tug like on it attached to the bell so they tug on the string yeah they're definitely dead <laughs> they weren't maybe they were before but they are now but they are definitely now yeah um so the situation led to a shortage in cadavers a situation that was so bad that historian ruth richardson described it as a growing atmosphere of crisis um so so much demand and so little supply uh, as the historian Tim Marshall puts it, Burke and Hare took grave robbing to its logical conclusion. Instead of digging up the dead, they accepted lucrative incentives to destroy the living. 
I love that quote. Grim. Uh, um, so let's look at their first corpse. So they, they got a kind of got a taste here. So the first corpse they sold wasn't actually a product of murder, but nor was it obtained through traditional body snatching methods either. So on the 29th of November, 1827, Donald, just the name Donald, don't give him a surname. He's just called Donald. Um, a lodger in Hare's house. <laughs> a lodger in Hare's house died of dropsy. Always dropsy in the 1800s. Dropsy oh my gosh, so much or, dropsy. Um, love a bit of dropsy. Gout. Gout yeah. and dropsy. Um, so, died of dropsy while owing four pounds of back rent. Uh, just a few days before receiving a quarterly army pension. So Hare felt pretty cheated by this, by fate. Felt short-changed. So after bemoaning his financial loss to Burke, the pair decided to sell Donald's body to one of the local anatomists. So Hare could make money, basically. So a carpenter provided a coffin for burial, which was paid for by the local parish, um, after he left, the pair opened the coffin, removed the body, which they hid under the bed, lovely, uh, and filled the coffin with bark and resealed it. So it'd be heavy enough to seem like there was a body in it. So that was taken away and buried. And after dark, on the day the coffin was removed for burial, they took the corpse to Edinburgh University where they looked for a purchaser. So they just wandered around seeing who wanted to buy their corpse. Just around they, like, Edinburgh University. Did they put I, it in some sort of carrying case, I, they, or did they just carry around a corpse? They like talk one about on the arms, one on the leg. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about like uh, how they put them in a, a tea chest later on, but like not. They, I didn't come up that like at this point. So like, I'm guessing they probably did use the tea chest, but I am imagining them just like arms, arms under the, under the armpits, just like <laughs> lugging it about this naked dead body. Um, so they were pointing in the direction of one, Robert Knox, who paid the two uh, seven pounds and ten shillings. Like, I, I can kind of just imagine him like looking over the body like he's buying like a second hand car or something. Going, it's <laughs> a little ding there. Seven pound ten, that do? Yeah, all right then. I'll take it. Uh, so Hare received four pounds and five shillings, a larger share to pay off the rent he was owed, while Burke took three pounds and five shillings. As the two left the university, one of Knox's assistants told them that the anatomist would be glad to see them again when they had another dis- to dispose oh, of. Oh, no. Uh, don't Mistake. encourage them. This is not a good yeah. idea. So, <clears throat> obviously, the two took him up on the offer. So, now remember that Burke was earning £1 a week as a cobbler. And that was considered respectable. And they'd just basically been given £8 for one night's work. So, yeah, I mean, they were just encouraging them. So the second body of the sword was that of a miller called Joseph. Again, just Joseph. I can't find a surname, just Joseph. I don't know where they get these names from. <laughs> like, like, historians <laughs> have got these names. Just Joseph. So I can't find a second surname, just Joseph. Uh, again, this murder was tied uh, to the lodging house business. So jo- Joseph had fallen ill with a fever and was dying anyway, and dying loudly, apparently. So basically, he'd become delirious with fever. Uh, so Hare was worried that his conspicuous and potentially infectious illness was driving away potential tenants and was bad for business. So to decide- say the two decided to get rid of the problem and make a pretty penny at the same time. I mean, why not? Why not? 
so Hare again turned to Burke, and after providing the, wick- uh, the victim with whiskey, Hare suffocated Joseph with a pillow, while Burke lay across the upper ters- torso to restrict movement. Uh, so historian Lisa Rosner considers the method of murder to be ingenious, apparently. <laughs> she says, Burke's weight on the victim stifled movement and thus the ability to make noise, while it also prevented the chest from expanding should any hair get past Hare's pillow. Uh, so in her opinion, the method would have been practically undetectable until the era of modern forensics. Lovely description wow. there. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Uh, the two the two took the body again to Knox, who paid them the princely sum of £10 for the corpse. <gasps> oh, this one getting was... more money. Yeah. They're getting more. Uh, their next victim was an unnamed English travelling salesman who peddled matches and Tinder. I mean, man, you're not making the Tinder that, like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the early form of Tinder. Um, he took like I okay, I'm just imagining him with, <laughs> with loads of pictures. It's of just girls. a book. It's just a catalogue. It's just a book, and he's Which like he, of drawings that he's made. <laughs> of, left, like, and then they can put them left or right. Yeah. Like, um. Yeah. No, um, that's not what it is. Tinder <laughs> is just wood, right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a great that's not a great business, is it? Like no, trying to sell there's wood everywhere. Little <laughs> 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 bits of wood and matches. Um so he had fallen ill with jaundice. I mean like what is it with this this place? Like everyone's getting ill. Jaundice at, at Hare's lodging house. As with Joseph, Hare was concerned with the effects of the the, the illness. Uh well no, he wasn't. concerned with <laughs> with effects of the illness might have on business. And so he and Bert killed him the same way they killed Joseph. Hare suffocated the victim while Burke lay across the body to stop movement and noise. So this time Hare pinched the nose and covered the mouth rather than using a pillow. Um, and this was the, the method they'd use going forward. Because, I mean, like, you don't want to have to wash those pillows. Don't want to dirty those pillows. Why dirty the pillows when you can just use your hand? That's, <laughs> oh, that's what they thought. Um, <laughs> so their next victim was uh, Abigail Simpson, uh, a oh, salt seller. Yeah, now they're moving on. It might, it gets really dark as it goes along. It just it starts to escalate soon. Uh, so <laughs> she was a pensioner who was living nearby uh, in the nearby village of Gilmerton. So she visited Edinburgh to supplement her pension by selling salt. On the 12th of February, 1828. So this is the only exact date of a murder we have. It's the only one that Burke quoted in his confession. All the rest are just kind of like roundabout dates. Uh, she was invited into the, into Hare's uh, lodging house and plied with enough alcohol to ensure to ensure she was too drunk to return home. Uh, so they murdered her after she passed out, basically. Lovely. Um, after murdering her, Burke and Hare placed the body in a tea chest and sold it to Knox again for £10. It was, it was winter. Business was good. This is the time you want to be selling corpses. Um... In Burke's confession, he stated Dr. Knox approved of it being so fresh, but he didn't ask any questions. Yeah, of course he didn't. He knew what was going on. Loved it. <laughs> this is what I keep imagining just like trying to buy like a secondhand car. That is in great condition. Like barely any <laughs> barely any miles on that cap that clock. They were like smoking at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> um so either in February or March that year, Margaret Hare invited an old woman. See, like the wives are totally involved. Invited an old woman to their house. She gave 
Uh, gave the old woman enough whiskey to fall asleep. And when Hare returned from his day out that afternoon, he covered the sleeping woman's mouth and nose with the bed tick, which is a stiff mastri- mat- uh, uh, mattress cover, and let, well, not nature take its course, but the, the situation that he'd put the woman in take its course. <laughs> So she was dead by nightfall. Uh, Burke joined his companion to transport the corpse to Knox, who paid another £10. So this is like February, March. So we're, like, we're heading towards spring. So I need to get the bodies in there quickly before the uh, the weather turns. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that was a less a less active murder, I suppose. But, but yeah, it proves that the, the wives were basically just well and truly in on it. Uh, I mean, they're getting all this cash money, so they don't care. Yeah. They, exactly, they're living the high life now. Uh, so, up until this point, the victims are generally being old or infirm. Uh, that changed with the next murder. Oh, no. So, in early April, Burke met two women in the pub. Mary Patterson and a Janet Brown. So, he bought the two women drinks uh, before inviting them back to his lodgings for breakfast. So, that was an all-night session. Full-on all-night session. Uh, the three of them left the, ta- uh, the tavern with two bottles of whiskey and went instead to his brother's house. Um, after his brother left for work, Burke and the women finished the whiskey and Patterson fell asleep on the table. Burke and Brown continued to drink and probably probably got their flirt on. Around this time, uh, Burke's wife, uh, Madougal, came in and accused Burke of having an affair. A row broke out and Madougal threw a glass at Brown's head, cutting her over the eye. Uh, Brown stated that she didn't know Burke was married and just booked out there, skulk out there, leaving Good. her mate sleeping on the table. I mean, that's bad. What but... a great mate! What a dick! What a great mate! At least mate. she. Uh, <laughs> that's true. But with Brown gone, Medigal went to fetch hair and his wife. The couple arrived shortly afterwards, and the two men murdered Patterson in her sleep. That afternoon, the pair took the body to uh, to Knox in the same tea chest they always did, while the two wives kept Patterson's skirt and petticoats. They were paid £8 for the corpse. Apparently, it was still warm when they delivered <gasps> Oh, no. Mistake. That is just But grim. also, yeah, I bet he was like, oh, it's fresh. Yeah. He did not give a shit. However, Ferguson, one of Knox's assistants, asked where they had obtained the body as he thought he recognised her. Burke explained that the girl had drunk herself to death and they purchased it from an old woman in the cannon gate. So they're just getting passed down bodies. That's what they're like saying. There's just there's loads of bodies just flying around Edinburgh. Just need to know <laughs> yeah, where you, to go. you want a body? You go get a body. You can go anywhere. <laughs> Barry Knox was delighted with the corpse and stored it in whiskey for three months before dissecting it. So obviously he got freaked out by Ferguson kind of recognising the body. So I was like, I probably should uh, keep that keep that out of the out of the way for a little while before we dissect that. Get some whiskey. Yeah. Lovely. Pickled it. Lovely stuff. Um, so when Brown later searched for a friend, she was told that uh, her friend had left for Glasgow with a travelling salesman. At some point in early to mid-1928, a Mrs. Haldane, uh, whom Burke described as a stout old woman, lodged at Hare's uh, premises. After uh, after she became drunk, she um, she fell asleep in the stable and she was smothered by the tea and sold to Knox. A few months later, Haldane's daughter came to find her. She oh, and no. Burke drank together 
uh, heavily, and he killed her, this time without Hare's assistance. Her body was put in the tea chest and taken to Knox, where Burke was paid £8. So now Burke is just acting alone and pocketing the cash himself. But that's no. horrible. Like, this like girl's like, this woman's young daughter, worried about her mum, came to find her and was just killed by the same people that killed her mum. Or person. Um, <clears throat> the next murder occurred uh, in May when an old woman moved into the house as a lodger. One evening while she was intoxicated, Burke smothered her. Uh, hair again wasn't present in the house at the time and her body was sold to Knox for £10. So now Burke is just like going out on his own. The next victim was a girl called Effie, a cinder gatherer. Uh, she made a liver- living by scavenging through bins and rubbish tips and uh, selling her findings. Most disturbingly, Burke knew Effie as she had previously sold him scraps of leather for his cobbling business. So, like, they were friends, kind of, like acquaintances at least. Ugh. Burke tempted her into the stable with whiskey, and when she was drunk enough, he and Hare killed her. Knox gave £10 for the body. The next murder was heartbreaking. This, I mean, like, more so than the ones before. So... Um, so uh, basically a woman had been found by Burke to be too drunk to stand um, by herself and was being helped home by a local constable so she was like in like that in the hands of the police at the time yeah Burke offered to take her there himself Uh, the dickhead policeman obliged I mean Police don't hand drunk women to random men. That's not a good idea. But this Burke took her back to Hare's house. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Here you go. Yeah. There you go. Go ahead. Do, what do a nice with man. With, with what you please. What a gent. Um, <laughs> Burke took her back to Hare's house where she was killed. Her corpse raised another £10 from Knox. Uh, these markers are just getting darker and darker. I mean, like. As you can see, like the pair just became more warped and numb and risky as like the as the murders progressed. So in June eighteen twenty eight, Burke and Hare murdered two lodgers, an old woman, and as and uh, as described in the sources, a dumb boy, her grandson. So, as Burke later recalled in his confession, while the boy sat by the fire in the kitchen, his grandmother was murdered in the bedroom by the usual method. We then picked up the boy and carried him into the same room where he was also killed. How this did at this point did Knox not be like, "How did you get these two corpses?" He does not give a shit. He knows. I mean, that's horrible. Like, Knox like, knows. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. So she, like, the kid must have like seen like the grandmother before. They did it. It's just horrible. Burke later said that this was a murder that disturbed him the most as he was haunted by the rec- his recollection of the boy's expression. I mean, like, too fucking right. You absolute dickhead. Um, <laughs> yeah, I still feel so the, still haunted. Like The tea chest that was usually used by the couple to transport the bodies was found to be too small to fit the two bodies in at the same time, so they forced them both into a herring barrel, uh, and this was taken to Surgeon Square, where they fetched £8 each. According to Burke's confession, the barrel was loaded onto a cart which Hare's horse uh, refused to pull further than grass market. After this, Hare called a porter with a hand cart who helped them transport the container. So this like unsuspecting guy just dra- dragging two dead bodies towards uh, to, to uh, a university for them. That's just horrible. Once back 
Internals close. Hare took his anger out on the horse by shooting it dead in the yard. I mean, like, what a dick. It was just like a clusterfuck of just dickishness. That what is wrong situation. with these guys? It's like, what happened? Who hurt you? Like. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. on the 24th of June, Burke and McDougal went on a lovely little holiday to Falkirk to visit McDougal's family. At this time, despite the mountains of cash the two had made through selling dead people, Hare was sure of money. So much so that he had pawned some of his clothes. So when the the couple returned, they found Hare was wearing new clothes and had a wad of cash. Lovely surplus money. Burke demanded to know whether Hare had done some murdering without him. But Hare denied uh, that he sold another body. So her, so Burke went and checked with Knox, who confirmed that Hare had sold a woman's body for £8. This led to an argument between the two men, and they came to blows. So Rick Burke could be doing that himself, but he got really pissed off when Hare decided to go do some murdering on his own. After this, Burke and his wife moved out of Hare's lodgings, uh, lodging house and into the home of his cousin, Jim John Brogan. Um uh, so okay. this is like two 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 streets away from the original lodging house. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the two two made up though. The lure of killing together was just too strong. So in late September, October, Hare was visiting Burke uh, at his cousin's house where he had moved. Uh, when Mrs. Ossler, a washer washerwoman, came to property uh, came to the property to do laundry. The men had got a drug and killed her. The corpse was with Knox that afternoon, for which the men received eight pounds. I mean, like. What crazy opportunity opportunists. I mean, this was Burke's cousin's house. So it wasn't like either uh yeah. Burke, Burke himself or like or Hare's house. And this was like the the washerwoman. This is like a, a someone who like frequently came around. Yeah, surely he she's known I mean, like, like throughout the area. Yeah. As well. It's just gonna just seem like so a good idea. <laughs> but I mean like they just they didn't really care. I mean like See what I mean by escalation. Next, they moved on to family members. So a week or two later, one of McDougal's relatives, Anne McDougal, came down to visit from Falkirk. Remember Burke and McDougal gone up to visit them a little while before? After a few days, the men killed her by their usual technique and received £10 for the body. How's that for hospitality? Cheers for for having us. Uh, We'll kill you. Drawn that with a side of murder. Yeah. (laughs) Um... So now things really started spinning out. So no one was off limits, it would seem, because Burke later claims that around this time, Margaret Hare suggested killing he- uh, Helen McDougal, Burke's, Burke's wife, on the grounds that they could trust her because she was a Scotch woman. Uh, however, Burke did refuse to kill his own Commodore wife. So, I mean, that's something, I suppose. Something very small. <laughs> I don't know uh, what instead... it is, but it's something. <laughs> Instead, they suffered. Uh, instead, they settled on James Wilson. So he was a familiar face on the streets of Edinburgh and was affectionately known locally as Daft Jamie because uh, it's the eighteen hundreds, and that's the sort of names that they come that's up okay with. Okay, in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> so he was just eighteen years old and was very much a vulnerable person. So he walked with a limp because of uh, caused by birth defects uh, in his feet. And he had uh, a mental disability. So he lived on the streets and, was, and supported himself through begging. In November, the two lured Wilson to Hare's lodgings with the promise of whiskey. They led Wilson into a bedroom 
the door was locked behind them by Margaret Hare, uh, who then pushed the key back under the door. Um, but I mean, like, as Wilson couldn't handle that much whiskey uh, and preferred snuff, he wasn't actually that drunk when they tried to kill him, as most of the the, uh, the Jewish victims were. He was also strong, so he fought back against the two, but was overpowered and killed in the normal way. So, I mean, he was entirely conscious for his murder, which is just horrible. It's horrible. Uh, his body was stripped. Uh, his body was stripped of uh, of his few possessions, and uh, and when the body was examined the following day by Knox and his students, several of them recognised it to be Wilson, but 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 Knox de- denied that it could be anyone the students knew, uh, and just. Uh, yeah, just thrust that aside. When word started circulating that Wilson was missing, Knox dissected the body ahead of the others that were being held in storage. The head and feet were removed before the main dissection. So it was not to arouse suspicion. What a dick. So he knew by this point. There was no denying it. Like, he knew what was going on. Yeah, of he course. He tried to hide it. Uh, so now their tri- crimes would finally catch up with them. So their final uh, victim, killed on the 31st of October, 1828, was Mar- a Margaret Doherty. So Burke had lured her into the Brogan lodging, her his cousin's house, um, by claiming that his mother was also a Doherty from the same area of Ireland. So he was like pretending that they were family. Usual, the pair began drinking, uh, knowing what he was going to do, Burke paid the two two of the house's other lodgers, Anne and James Gray, to stay at Hare's for the night. So he got rid of them. At some point, Burke left Margaret in the company of Hare the Deagle, saying he was off to buy some more whiskey, but he was actually off to get Hare. So all of them continued into the evening, Burke, Hare, uh, Burke and Hare and the, and the wives and Margaret. So at around 9pm, the Greys returned briefly to collect uh, some clothing for their children. Um, so to the police, they kind of reported at this time, Burke, Hare and their, uh, the wives and Margaret were all drunk and singing and dancing and kind of like, it was like a merry atmosphere. Sometime after this, uh, they murdered Margaret. So she obviously just passed out usual way. Yeah. Uh, and then decided to hide her body in a pile of straw at the end of the bed. The next day, the Greys returned and Anne became suspicious when Burke would not let her approach the bed where she'd left her stockings. When they were left in the, alone in the house in the early evening, the Greys searched the straw and found Doherty's body showing blood and saliva on the face. So they quickly set off to like um, to to inform the police. On their way, uh, they ran into Madougal, who tried to bribe them with an offer of £10 a week, but they refused. Good people. I mean, they were poor, but they wouldn't take the money. Good people. Very uh, good so, people. So while the Grace reported the murder to the police, Burke and Hare removed the body and took it to Knox's surgery. But they wouldn't get away with this time. On questioning, Burke and his wife gave different times for Margaret's departure from the house, which raised enough suspicion for the police to, to uh, take them in for questioning, and a warrant for the police search of the premises. Through the search, the police managed to find Margaret's bloodstained clothing hidden under the bed, uh, so, and early the following morning, the police went to Knox's dissecting rooms where they found Margaret's body. James Gray identified her as a woman he had seen uh, with Burke and Hare. So all four were arrested that day, as well as uh, as Brogan, uh, Burke's cousin. Okay. All denying knowledge of the events. So, 
Although the police were sure a murder had taken place and that at least one of the four uh, were guilty, they were uncertain as to whether they could secure a conviction. Also, uh, the lack of bodies made proving the crimes <laughs> difficult. There was uh, no evidence. Those have been cut up and disposed of. Um, Habeas corpus, which is like Latin yeah. for like present the body. It makes it... it it makes a murder conviction incredibly hard to do yeah. if you don't have a body. It happens more nowadays, but like, yeah, if you don't have a body, it's like they could be alive. Yeah. However, they, they did have a few witnesses. Janet Brown went to the police and identified her friend Mary Patterson's clothing, which the police had in their position from the search. So that was the the two women uh, who were drinking with Burke. Um, and then she left yeah. and her friend was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also a local, ba- uh, a local baker also informs them that Jamie Wilson's trousers were being worn by Burke's... Um, re- one of Burke's relatives who like, lived in the area as well. Grim. Yeah. Just passed off a dead man's trousers to uh, to one of his lovely... So, to get his conviction... Sir William Ray, the Lord Advocate, decided to focus on one individual and extract a confession in exchange for immunity from prosecution. So, I mean, that's pretty grim. Like, you're going to get... One of them's going to get off. And one of them's going to get hanged. Yeah. Probably. And he he chose Hare. So on the 1st of December, um, Hare was informed that if he dobbed in on the others and provided full details of the murders, he would go free. Um, and because he couldn't be testify, couldn't be brought to testify against his wife, um, that bit meant that she was also exempt from prosecution. So that just left Burke and his wife. So Hare made a full confession and detailed all the killings, but obviously ensuring the stories stories are all very Burke heavy. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the fourth of December, formal charges were laid against Burke and McDougall for the murders of Mary Patterson, James Wilson, and Mrs. Doherty. Following this. Burke made his own confession, uh, this one blaming Hare for all the murders, but it was too late because Ray had picked Hare to go free and Burke was definitely for the noose. Knox, on the other hand, faced no charges for the murders because Burke's statements to the police exonerated the surgeon. However, public opinion was against the doctor. Many in Edinburgh thought he was a sinister ringleader who got Burke and Hare dancing to his tune. So Knox basically uh, had to leave leave Edinburgh. He had to flee to London, but it's his uh, his career never recovered after this. Yeah. So Fair. on conviction of <laughs> on conviction of Burke, the judge stated your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. So Burke was hanged on the morning of the 28th of January, 1829, in front of a crowd of 25,000. Views from windows in tenements overlooking the scaffolding were hired at prices ranging from 5 to 20 shillings. It was a paid-for event. Pay-per-view, baby. On the 1st of February... On the 1st of February, his corpse was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe in the Anatomy Theatre of the University's Old College in what was some poetic justice. So only a limited number... They sold tickets. This was a ticketed event. And only a, only a limited number of tickets have been made of, uh, available. So this meant a minor riot ensued amongst those who wanted access. <laughs> Carl was, was only restored 
uh, after one of the university's professor- professors negotiated with the crowd that they would be allowed to pass through the theatre in batches of 50 after the dissection to see the body. During the procedure, which lasted two hours, Munro dipped his, qu- his quill pen in Burke's blood and wrote, this is written in the blood of William Burke, who was hanged oh. in Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. So that, that piece of paper, I think, is now... Um, must be on show. You can see it, like the uh, yeah at the uh, anatomical museum uh, in Edinburgh's medical school. I'm um, going there as That's, a judge. I'm actually. <laughs> I, yeah, going I really there. want to go there right now. I'm going. <laughs> as the judge requested, Burke's skeleton was given also given to the museum, uh, where it still remains to this day. I'm definitely going. I'm not, That's <laughs> it. That this is a deal breaker. That's a I'm next going. holiday. <laughs> So Hare was released on the 5th of February, 1829. His extended stay in custody custody had been undertaken for his own protection. He was assisted in leaving Edinburgh in disguise by mail coach. So he was taken to Dumfries first. At one of the stops, he was recognised by a fellow passenger, Erskine Douglas Sandford, who had been a junior counsel for the Wilson family during the prosecution. On arrival in Dumfries, um, so basically he just told everyone, on arrival to Dumfries, the news of Hare's presence spread and a large large crowd gathered at the hostel where he was meant to stay. Police arrived and arranged for a decoy coach to draw off the crowd while Hare escaped through the back window and onto the uh, the town's prison for his own safety. A crowd then surrounded the building, stones were thrown at the door and the windows and the street lights were smashed before a hundred special constables arrived to store or restore order. It's been like a hundred police came to like quell this this uh, this riot. Like the amount of money that, that would have cost. Just let them have him. That's what I reckon. <laughs> let the crowd have him. In the small hours of the morning, escorted by a sheriff officer and a militia guard, Hale was taken out of town, set down on the Allen Road and instructed to make his way to England. So they fobbed him off on us. There you go. Go to England. Take your crimes to England. All the ruffians live in England. (laughs) There was no subsequent reliable sightings of him and his eventual fate is unknown. Um... It's not ha- it's not saying what happened to the women either, though some reports suggest that Helen Madougal was spotted by a group of workers at Deanston Mills near Dune uh, and the angry mob basically just beat her to death. Wow. So she Good did win. die for her crimes. Margaret Hare was released on the 19th uh, of January and travelled to Glasgow, planning to sail back to Ireland. While waiting for a ship, she was recognised and attacked by a mob, but was given shelter in a police station before... Uh, being given a police escort onto a Belfast-bound vessel, uh, it's unknown what became of her after after she landed in Ireland. But it, it's yeah, she got away as well. So wow. two died and two escaped for the eighteen or whatever murders they committed. And there you go. That is Burke and Hare and their fucking insane story. That was insane. Oh my gosh, but I really enjoyed it. It's, it's <laughs> a wild I'm a ride. sick individual. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, how much did they help <laughs> the development of of surgery through their murders? I wonder. Oh God, I don't even want to think about it. It's a terrible thing to think about, isn't it? Um, but, it um, also, following up from this, guys, if you're not an organ donor please become one <laughs> because it can actually really help because otherwise people. this is what happens um 
This you is what happens otherwise. They can have anything they want for me. Like, if I'm dead, I'm not using it anymore. <laughs> so go for it, uh, you know. This is... Le- uh- this is the result in a and a change of the law after this. After this and the and the London ones, uh, yeah, they changed the law, so it was easier, easier to to get hold of cadavers for this. So, like, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Similar oh, things happening with the the don- donor thing, isn't it? Like uh, soon it's going to be unless you specifically say you don't want. Yeah, I think it's already already a thing i don't know if it's happened yeah. already but i think i'm pretty sure it has where basically if you don't opt out you're automatically opted in which i think is totally fair yeah good good uh, policy i think um i think but luckily it did take like... Th- something like this to to <laughs> to, to uh, bring yeah, about that change you, in law obviously if you have like a religious objection then i'm sure that people will opt out yeah but yeah so i sh- think so surely, if you're religious, then you want to help your fellow, like, fellow I think, man. I um, think people like organs. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that um, your soul is like in your blood. That's why they didn't give blood transfusions. Oh, really? Yeah. So you, ah. I think they would object because of their whole blood soul thing. So they really hate vampires. Re- yeah, that's basically their religion. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> There's no vampires in there, as far as I'm aware. Um, uh, one really quick recommendation from me for this week is The Dissident, which is on Amazon Prime. It's nowhere else, because nowhere else wanted to take the risk of streaming it. And that's all I need yeah. to tell you about watching The Dissident. It- it's, it's about a murder that happened, and it's about Saudi Arabia. And nowhere oh, else wanted to okay, take then. it because, yeah, because they didn't want to piss off Saudi Arabia. But we just watched it and, oh my god, it's one of the best documentaries. It's by the guy who made Icarus. I can't remember his oh, name okay, now. Then. I keep forgetting his name. Oh, Brian Fogel? Yeah, I think that's it. And um, it's it's amazing. So please go and watch it and um, get involved as well. Hashtag. Um, and while we're on oh, hashtags, you should out. follow us on Twitter. Um, at have you ever pod and the old Instagram as well for these little, oh, yeah, little images and, and uh, if you want yeah. give us a little review five yeah, stars yeah give us would be, we'll be lovely or a little you know just review on the old whatever app you're on if you're on Apple Podcasts it really helps with the algorithm if you just tap those five stars because um, we get bumped up in the charts and also follow us wherever you're listening to this, whether it be Spotify, Apple, or any of the other podcast apps that we're on that I wasn't even aware that we were on, but apparently we are, which is great. <laughs> so it's a lovely go. surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.